perspectives, different views, one voice. Okay, welcome to the LDM Perspective. And we just wanted to start off quickly by reading out some feedbacks and comments that we've received from past episodes. Uh, this is something that we encourage all our listeners. If you do hear anything or want to feedback to us, you can comment through our Instagram page and you can send a message at LDN Perspective. Uh, so we've got a comment here from Sylvian Croydon. Uh, she commented on our episode 31, why I'm, I'm black and I voted conservative. And uh, her comments were, the questions that no one has asked is, how many people that vote Labour actually think that Labour are trying to help them? And also, whichever party you vote for, does it still help your community? You can still help your community, whether or not you like it. However, I would say that some parties don't actually help you progress, but they help you stay reliant on them. So technically, they are part of the problem. <laughs> what do you think, guys? Oh, jeez. What's the first... Can we break it down? What's the <laughs> first part of that question? So, how many people of Labour are trying are actually voting so in regards to people that are like la- labor strongholds how yeah many of them how many of them are actually voting voted yeah as in this last yeah I, I guess that's a bit it, we will need some stats to yeah, actually to answer that, that question because yeah. it's just a bit like because i guess okay so what she's trying to say is that there might be people that actually support labor that might not have voted yeah hence the reason why the result turned out that way yeah that's what she might be alluding to yeah, I think that's where it's going, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit... Yeah, we'd need some statistics <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah. But if, if they're Labour strongholds and, and Labour still retain... Cause how many seats did Labour lose in this they, election? They lost... They did lose a lot of seats. Yeah. yeah. A lot of their strongholds, they actually lost seats in their strongholds. And so we'd need to see how close the margins were in those strongholds because if it was, it was a very close margin, then it certainly probably would have made a difference if, for example, Labour supporters... Mm-hmm did not vote in that particular um, constituency. Yeah. Okay. Um, whichever party you vote for, you can still help your community. That's, that's true. That's true. I, I guess, obviously, like, we tried to qualify the whole conversation about um, black and I voted conservatives because looking in the past, a lot of black people, because of their working class background, might vote Labour. Um, but it doesn't mean because you're black and you vote conservative, you can't ho- help your community. Yeah. Um, it's just more when you're looking at uh, um, these austerity measures, what your community will actually have. Like youth centres are there open, all these libraries and all these kind of things. So, But then bear in mind on that kind of context to that, when, um, as you're saying about the question, certain people might think that they're too better. They're too important. They're not. They don't want to help the community anymore. They just want to move forward. Compared to our last conversation on Diana Young, so she thinks that she's ahead of us now. She's done what she needed to do. So it's her own interest for her to move on and do what she needs to do. So that's why I think certain people would continue to help, but certain people might not want to go through that down, that kind of role anymore because they're too important now and just want to move on. So there's a, there's a two side of it, personally, in that context of it. Yeah. And then also looking at how some parties don't actually help you progress. They want you to remain reliant on them. And so they are actually the problem. <laughs> but then if you look at that, if you're talking about progression, then you look at that. Because a lot of the times people look at Labour and they look at um, all these, um, like the social housing, social... If, if 
regards to that question, that's the only thing that you could foresee. Because instead of maybe buying a property, why should you buy a property if you could get the council offering your property? So it depends <laughs> on what you it, it depends that's on what you see progression to be. Yeah. So I can understand that that point. But I guess the only thing I'll say to that is that there are people that actually need this. Right? There are people that need it. There are people that might not be able to um, afford to buy a property. So when they want to start to actually progress, it's like where does progression start from? Mm-hmm. It could be that you're on social housing until you save enough to buy that property. So I guess by, by the other scale, so you're on social housing, why should you buy a property? You could just save that money. I don't know. Uh, it, but then the counter to that could be more in terms of saving to buy a property. Sometimes it's more of a mindset and habits and practices, yeah. and that has to be learned or taught. And you might be helping these people, yes, save money, but they're not necessarily got the mindset to be saving towards something or carry on. Uh, yeah. How, how, how what's, that the, what's that got that to do with the party? party. Yeah, so, because so, that's more to do with just your habits yeah, and your, your mindset. No, 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 no. So you could, have poli- you could have policies in, in place that save you money or help you in that sense, but they're not actually helping you to get out of that situation. Yeah, but They're just helping you provide like, a short-term solution. There's like policies like help to buy ISS. Did anyone actually open one of them? Yeah, I've got one. I've got one too. Yeah, but that's that's not labour though. No, but I mean it's a policy. I'm not. I never. And I never necessarily mentioned. But the question is, you're referring party. to the party though. It's referring to the party making you reliant on them. Yeah, but the thing is, we can hold parties accountable as well. In, you know, in if, what sense? If, if if it is, for example, within you know MPs that do all you know sessions within their constituencies, if you see that your member of parliament had pledged something, yeah. and it's now one year, two years, and this is something which is essential for your community, you can as well raise the issue. Yeah, now I, I get what you're saying. I think it's just more in a sense of making the party making you reliant on them, so they'll give you certain things to help you, like but what? it's. Like what? Not yeah, because I think we, we need to qualify what we see. We say <laughs> reliant. We say reliant. Like uh, you just put me on the spot. I, 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 I just I, I, read I, the I, question. I, I, I can't think that right now. <laughs> I think maybe, I guess saying that they're reliant, maybe that some people, for example, may stick to Labour and vote Labour regardless of what the policies are. Some people may not necessarily read the policies, but because Labour are historically yep. for the working class, if you're from their background, you'll just vote for them anyway. You won't yeah. necessarily look at their policies. But if you look at who's leading the party, there will certainly be a difference in the policies that are being pushed forward. Sorry, I'm just going to wrap this up. It's good feedback in terms of the comment, and we can definitely go into it more yeah, <laughs> in another yeah. episode. Yeah, it feels so like if, every, if everyone, if anyone does want us to touch on the whole political side of voting and stuff, we can definitely do a part two episode if you're interested. All right. So today's episode is: Are you blindly supporting human trafficking? I know it's a bit of a deep, strong one, human trafficking. A lot of people don't really think about that. but um, So I'm your host, Mo, that will be helping with this conversation today. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Cam, Ali, Kojo. And we've also got a special guest with us. Uh, we've got Pasca here. Hi, I'm Pasca Mo. Okay, thank you. And um, so I just wanted to kick it off basically by starting by what is human trafficking, just to give you a brief little description of it. And um, so what we found is human trafficking this is a definition from the UN, is the trade of humans for the purpose of forced labor, 
sexual slavery and commercial slavery exploits for the traffickers or others. Um, so that's a bit deep. <laughs> um, so yeah, what made me talk about it was really from an article which I read online. And um, it was an article which uh, the title was Police Make 14 Arrests on Modern Slavery Raids on South London Nail Bars. And um, the crazy thing is, obviously, I, I've been down um, like Wharf Road, from Wharf Road all up to Campbell Road, and there's like about, was it 25 or 30 nail bars there? Am I right? Have easy. you guys noticed that? Easy, easily, mate. Easy. Easily, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was kind of crazy just in terms of how this was such a big thing. And um, so the article says that officers targeted five nail bars in Southwark in a five-month multi-agency investigation launched uh, concerns after raised vulnerable people were working in the venues. So they found 24 people in total, 19 adults and five children were found inside the addresses and are now being supported by specially trained officers. And they were escorted to nearby reception centers where they received medical treatment and support from the Metropolitan Police. Right, question, what wayside is? So these people were Vietnamese? Okay. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Why do I think that they were Vietnamese? I mean, no, I'm saying you mentioned they're Vietnamese, right? Are they most not likely those kind of those people they're most getting victim, like, victimized? Um, yeah, I mean, it also comes from... Basically, I know this investigation was mainly triggered by uh, a lorry which they found of... 39 Vietnamese migrants that were found dead in a refrigeration truck in Essex. Uh, this was literally a month before this raid, two months before this raid happened. Um, so it is a big problem um, in terms of Vietnamese people being transported over and they're being promised to work in nail bars, restaurants, and even cannabis factories and prostitution and things like that. Yeah, I, I found that article about the 39 Vietnamese migrants, that was completely shocking. And I think what it did do is it probably did shock the nation because I think the issue of trafficking was t probably brought to the forefront um, of people's minds as soon as that happened. I think um, in terms of that particular incident, and now I'm speculating, but I suspect that probably wasn't the first time that that driver had trafficked people into the country, you know, but that certainly was the first time, you know, such a, you know, you know tragic set of circumstances took place as a result of um, his actions in terms of trafficking. But I think what it has done is it's certainly raised the issue as to what is going on in terms of people being trafficked and how much, I guess, how much organized crime is attached to this particular practice. Just uh, to add one thing on the Vietnamese, um, Vietnamese are among the top five nationals who are trafficked into the UK. Top five? Yeah, top five. Do you mind going through the list? Um, I not give you all the list. <laughs> right, what would be the top one? Right? Um, if you were to do one, two, five, what, what, how um, would that go? 
One till five, I know Vietnam is UK and the rate of trafficking internally within the United Kingdom has yeah. also really gone up. Okay. If you read the, uh, the trafficking report yeah. uh, from Home Office for last year. Uh, Nigeria, uh, Sudan. So Nigeria is part of the top five? Top ten. For oh, Nigeria, top ten. Sorry. Okay. Top ten. Sudan yeah. is in the top ten. Yeah. Eritrea, the top ten. Albania is number two on the list. I think Vietnam is number three. Yeah, so... Now I wonder what, what nation is UK. number one then? UK. Yes. UK is number one yes. for trafficking people. Internal trafficking. Internal, okay. Yeah, it's so high. Really? Wow. So, yeah. so when you so say internal trafficking, trafficking British people... people. Yeah. Internal trafficking, okay. The main thing is vulnerabilities around uh, communities within the UK, yeah, they yeah. themselves, including the number of children who have gone up uh, for example, I read a case of a young girl who grew up in care, and because she was so vulnerable, yeah. uh, she met this you know, gentleman, a man, yeah. who then uh, started to befriend her and groom her and then later on traffic her. Yeah. Now, this is because actually for, for children who grew up in care, they have issues around trust, yeah. they have issues around you know, attachment and building relationships, so then they become really vulnerable vulnerable to trafficking yeah. if someone, you know, come across as they can offer that protection yeah. or the love that they could probably be okay. be lacking yeah. or the care. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the whole like grooming it goes along with along with grooming. With grooming and the whole because I've heard cases in the whole Bradford they keep talking about Bradford and have you in the whole Bradford, grooming, yeah. yes, Manchester, kind of, yes, yeah. and all that. Okay. Yeah. But again, in the UK, the level of awareness is really high around human trafficking. So therefore, you know, you know, awareness comes with increase in referrals mm. and identification of cases as well. Seriously, because I, I find it a bit, a bit oblivious when you come, like, in just in general in the community. Because, for example, when I'm going to work, this is a scenario, this is an example, when I go to work and I see children... Like after school and three o'clock or ish, I see them like just on their scooter moving so quick. The parent is all at the back, and then I, I see someone's talking to them, and then I'm looking back and I'm looking at the parent. And I'm thinking, why are you not alerting to your children? Do you understand? I find that a bit, a bit weird. Like how they don't. It's like, is it not taught in school or what? Right. Um. There are schools probably who could be doing, you know, awareness around human trafficking directly. Yeah. Uh, but again, awareness through community groups, yeah. uh, churches as well, is going on. Okay. Now, when it comes to parents, I have had incidences as well where you find children, they are loitering around, and you talk to them. It's rather too late. Are you not supposed to be home? And they say, huh? <laughs> or they're ignoring you, or they're saying, leave us alone, yeah. things like that. I think the biggest thing is that parents, we, as parents, we need to really re, re, you know, realize that there are risks outside there that our children can be facing yeah. and take up the responsibility of teaching them yeah. about these issues of human trafficking and modern slavery and grooming, which are happening, that there are actually real issues happening. Yeah. Because it's our responsibilities. It's, it's interesting that you do bring that up, Pascal, especially with um, young people, because through my work as a solicitor, I've been made up where 
much more aware of, of slavery and exploitation taking place in terms of younger people. And there's a practice now in the court where if a young person is charged with a particular offence, so for example, it could be supplying drugs, and that there's evidence that they might be exploited, then there's a referral to the national referral mechanism, and they sort of categorise the child as being um, a victim of modern slavery, and that effectively is a defence to um, mm. those particular offences. And so that's there's starting to be sort of a much more increased use of that refer- of that mechanism yeah. in order to identify children that are um, being exploited, but. On top of that, I've had conversations with other professionals, especially teachers at school, and with those conversations, I've been told that some gangs are targeting children under the age of 10, because if anyone knows, the legal age of criminal responsibility is 10. So if someone below the age of 10 is arrested for a particular offence, there are no legal consequences, they can't be charged, they can't be prosecuted. Um, and so from what I hear, a lot of gangs are recruiting kids under that age and tr- starting to groom them yeah. into um, particular crimes. But um, would you not say to, in that kind of context to it, it might not be trafficking? It's not human trafficking, so to speak, but it's, it's a form of modern-day slavery. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to add to the definition of human trafficking, which uh, Moses made. Uh, If we say trade, people might think that, oh, yes, there is a sticker putting for sale. See, I'm here. The thing is, there's human trafficking, which involves recruitment, transportation, harboring, or transferring a person, okay, to another place by use of deception, coercion, violence, or abuse of power, or using vulnerability of a person. In this case, the child is vulnerable, so exploiting them for purposes of exploitation. Mm. Now, the exploitation can be sexual exploitation, forced labor, it can be domestic servitude, criminal activities, which you're talking about, or organ harvesting. You know, which I think um, he's going to talk about it later. And again, the other part is modern slavery, which does not necessarily involve the movement or someone Mm. transporting someone around, but rather, you know, using dead bondages, threatening them, you know, and putting them in, in, in a control of slavery, like they have no choice, threatening them, you know. If, if you report or we will report you to authorities, this will happen to you. So the, the victims live in that fear and they're so vulnerable. So that is modern slavery. So the case that you're talking about is a case of modern slavery where mm-hmm. children are yeah. being exploited. Is it, so just on that point, though, I was thinking, because when I checked the Home Office stats regarding modern slavery and, and human trafficking, mm-hmm. it seems that this has been going up in the past couple of years. So then I guess the question I'll ask is that, is it because on one hand the law is now being extended to cover situations in the UK where a child has been coerced into a situation of selling drugs mm-hmm. and now obviously that's now coming up in the stats? Or are we seeing different things at play here? Is it, is it just a matter of that or is there other things at play here that needs to be considered as to why this is increasing of late? Right. Uh, with 
Human trafficking and modern slavery, there are indicators that um, authorities or those who are making decisions on you know, referrals to determine if someone is a victim of human trafficking or not would normally look at and pick on. Uh, for example, they could be looking at the control uh, over the victims, so control of movement, uh, situation where documents are taken away from them, mm. dead bondage, psychological trauma, you know, or physical violence, which are, you know, uh, kind of uh, happen to them. So there are so many indicators that they look at. So you find that sometimes uh, when a case, you're looking at a case, you're just not looking at that one thing. You have to open up your mind and discuss and ask this person a lot of questions uh, in order to be able to pick some of the indicators. So because of this, you find that uh, so many cases can then turn out to be a case of modern slavery or a case of human trafficking. And if these indicators are not there, then, you know. The reason why I ask that, just before you come in, Ali, I know you're in because another leading question. The reason why I ask that specific question is because when you look at the case of this um, Vietnam, um, their slavery, and you look at Warfield and you look at the nail shops, the key thing here is the economic factors, right? So these people are leaving one country to come into another country, and they've been sold this dream of better economic kind of pastures mm. in order to do this. So I was just asking in regards to the drive of the increase, is it because of economical factors in other countries leading to this? Or is it because of the awareness <laughs> that has been... Do you, do you get where I'm going with that? Yes. That's why I asked that specific question. So is it is it part to do with those economical challenges in countries as well and people being sold that dream? So when you, Hold on. When you say economic challenges, are you saying basically, are we funding these nail shops... Not necessarily. I'm not even getting there yet. I'm not even getting there yet. I'm not even getting this increase in um, issues being reported. Okay. Um, right, so very good question because, I mean, with human trafficking, there are so many factors. There's the push factor, then the pull. What do you describe as the push well, factor? The push factor is basically situation at home okay. or countries of okay. origin. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How is it there? Mm. So here we'll be looking at, you know, the economic issues mm. you're mentioning. You know, poverty, you know, maybe family breakdowns or maybe lack of employment, you know, or political situation. So basically those sort of, you know, issues that would make people want to look for opportunities or an escape out of that country or community. Yeah. Then the pull factor is basically situation in the destination area where they're going to. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So push factor is source country. Mm. Pull factor, destination area. If okay. they're going to Europe, yeah. so maybe they're looking for greener pastures and that's what they're thinking. Oh, yes, you know, we can get jobs there. Or, you know, the message going back home is that, oh, yeah, you can get a free house. And uh, 
I work with victims of trafficking uh, since 2004 up until last year in August. So basically the issue is like, yeah, when you go to Europe or you go to the UK, you will get free education, you know, you'll get a good job, the government will give you a free house. So all these things wanting you, they want to go. And again, in the countries here, for example, if there are demands, Mm. the demands for, you know, Cheap Which labor. goes into m- most things. Exactly. <laughs> because there are stories of people traveling from North London to come yes. to South London to do their nails. Yes. Because of the demand in that yes. cheap labor aspect exactly. that you're going into as well. The demand for cheap labor. Yeah. So there are these people who establish their nail bars. Yeah. And yes, legally, minimum wage applies in this country. And then it becomes expensive, probably. They want to maximize you know, profit. So they look for these alternatives. Oh, yes, we can bring someone, pay them close to nothing. And then, and this is driven by greed, which is bad. Mm. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to look deeper into trafficking from Africa and how it affects us, you know, uh, the African communities as well. So we'll go deeper into the source countries from Africa as well. Uh, Can I add one thing on on your question. There's one thing which is facilitating factors. Facilitating factors could be these issues of free movement, Mm. you know, so it's really easy to smuggle uh, people across borders. Uh, You mentioned other things, Africa. In West Africa, the ECOWA society, there is free movement across borders. So it's very easy to traffic someone from Nigeria to Niger to, to cross over, take them to Libya. Mm-hmm. Because the, the economic community of West Africa, yeah. Yeah, yeah. something, yeah. ECOWAS. Yeah. 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 Organization or whatever. Yes. You know, yeah. and the same thing applies with Europe. Okay. Because of the free movement, you find that. Yeah, it's yeah. it's easy to smuggle, you know, and traffic people across borders. Right. So Albanians, when they cross over, you know, that's, that's why they are also among the top, you know, mm. nationals being trafficked into the UK. Okay. I was just, and I'm not sure if you have this. The Taken there. film that was on the Albanians, right? No, Taken. I think so yeah, yeah. Taken, it, yeah, that's what it was about human trafficking. <laughs> because because I guess in regards to the actual question that was posed by Mo, mm-hmm. and just drilling down using that example of this war fraud and the nail shops and this demand, because obviously we create the demand, didn't it? I say, yes. well, I say we, because I do do pedicure, so I am not to go into a war fraud to do a bit of a pedicure. So then I guess, but then I guess this is something that you move on with, isn't it? The factors and how we make these, we play out these kind of scenarios, yeah. because we want cheap, 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 and then yeah. what that kind of leads yeah. to that. I, I need more to think, but I just... That, that yeah, just no, because, I mean, the concern really, like, in the title is, are we blindly supporting the human trafficking? <coughs> so, because of our, I don't know, economic situations, our money's a bit tight at the moment, we might opt for that cheap version. It may not be the best. It may be a lot quicker, but um, it satisfies us short-term, and it's a lot easier, so... Yeah, but it's funny how South London became, like, the hub for like cheap, <laughs> cheap deals. And I realised this in uni where I had someone just saying to me, oh, I'm coming to South. I was like, but you live on the other end of London. Like, yeah, because I could get it for £10. I have to pay £20 where I am or whatever the price was at that time. And I found that quite fascinating. That was the first time I actually heard of it. But I never actually drilled it down to see how are these people providing such cheap labour 
But as as a disclaimer, though, we're not saying that all nail shops run by <laughs> Vietnamese <laughs> are doing <laughs> human <laughs> trafficking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not saying that, right? <laughs> it's interesting, Project, that you bring up the fact that it seems like South London is um, seems to be a hub for a lot of these nail salons. And is there a particular reason why it's one part of London over another, or is it just a case of chance it just happens to be South London. Really ah, like I said, on Wharf Road alone, there's a good 30 nail shops all next to each other. Literally. And you haven't even added Peckham to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From one end to the other. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So, yeah, we wanted to let Pascal just tell us a bit more about the work that you've been doing and how you've been kind of trying to combat this. I did have one question for Pascal. So in, in terms of, of the work you do, you work alongside a lot of um, agencies that are to say legal agencies, so police, assuming Crown Prosecution Service. I just wanted to sort of know what your take on um, prosecuting these sort of cases or taking these cases to court, what effect the modern slavery act has had on bringing these cases to court? Because I know prior to the inception of that particular act, it may very well have been difficult to have proven um, that trafficking was taking place. So I just wanted to sort of get your take on it. Do you mind giving us the day of that act when that act was? Well, the act is, it's, it's 2015. 2015. 2015. That, that was when it received yeah. this okay. royal assent. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't really put in place till yeah, until... Yeah, I, I don't have the particular date when it came into effect, but... But it's 2015, yeah. 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 So uh, in terms of... Uh, I didn't write down the question, so... <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the effects of the Modern Slavery Act and how it has had uh, in, in prosecuting uh, perpetrators of trafficking, I think looking at the statistics and the, the number of uh, cases which has been tried in court and also those who have you know, been penalized for mm -hmm. trafficking mm -hmm. by the fact that since 2015 that has gone up, uh, one good thing that came with uh, the um, Modern Slavery Act is the fact that it strengthened multi-agency working. So the police are not just working alone, but they're working with other agencies and other organizations. Um, I work with the Salvation Army, but uh, for the last four years, I've been working on trafficking with the Salvation Army. And... Uh, there are, you know, anti-slavery networks which are established in different regions, and there is cross-sharing of, you know, learning and key points and identifying how, you know, different agencies can actually strengthen uh, their responses in tackling human trafficking. So, uh, and one good thing is that with the Modern Slavery Act came also a lot of training and building capacities mm -hmm. of the police. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I first started working, uh, I was working in a safe house. And basically, uh, sometimes the police would have no idea, you know, what the indicators of trafficking would be. And then when I joined the Salvation Army, the police would maybe send you a referral mm -hmm. or probably you, you refer a case to the police and they say, but this is a domestic violence case. 
you know and you're saying no this is a trafficking case these are the indicators and then they would take so long to respond maybe interviewing victims or even doing actual investigations and that and yes there are procedures so there has been uh, a lot of capacity building and training mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of investment within the police force mm -hmm. to make sure that perpetrators of trafficking are actually prosecuted you know for the crime that they are committing. Okay. Yeah. My question is, why did they implement this before in the police, police force? Because obviously we, the community or the public, we think that the police are supposed to know it all. They are the eyes, they are our everything. So why they're not understanding, why didn't they understand this all before? Because they use their power. I, I personally be, believe, in my opinion, police use their power to their advantage towards people, but what they're supposed to work on, they don't do it. So why is that? Why is it now they're trying to come into it and starting to work into this now? I think based on my experience, it is purely down to the fact that initially the gravity or how serious the issue of human trafficking was not strongly grasped by everybody mm. and all the sectors, you know. So there was that issue of awareness as well within and among the police forces, but that is something which the government, the UK government, has put in a lot of investment. I'm not here to talk on their behalf. If we know, uh, in 2015, when the Modern Slavery Act was passed, Theresa May made the fight against human trafficking as one of the key priorities. Well, she but this time around, she was taking people to the Caribbean. Let's try to find this. Let me just get them in the Caribbean. Yes, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. That's good. All right, yeah. So you're going to tell us a bit more about the sort of work that you've done and how you Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I've, I've already talked. You can now know my voice. Uh, well, Pascamo, um, I started working on the issue of human trafficking in 2004 from a safe house. Do, do you mind, just before, please hold that thought. Yes. I, I guess for me, I want to drill down. Why why human trafficking of all the jobs that you could do? Why? What, is there like a personal experience that like, what, like... I wouldn't think of yeah, yeah. having a job as, you know, honestly. So, so I'm quite intrigued to understand yeah. your train of thought of, of landing in the first place. I know, I know you're going to go into what you've done after, but... Yes. Well, it's, it's interesting because when I saw that job advert yeah. um, at the time, I related it mainly to my experience. I come from Uganda, and I was born, and I grew up, and I got married in a war-thorn region. And okay. during that season. So I used to work in um, a reception center for uh, child soldiers. So when I mm. saw the advert for the job to work in a safe house for victims, uh, with victims of trafficking, I thought it was a good opportunity to, to use some of my experiences and skills, you know, working with child soldiers in Uganda to work in a safe house. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's quite enriching, though. 
Right. So uh, just like uh, I've just been saying, uh, I started my journey quite long ago, uh, working with child soldiers in Uganda. And then 2004, I started working with a company in Birmingham, uh, Midland Hearts, in their safe house. It was a safe house for uh, male victims of trafficking. So that is just day-to-day interaction and support with victims of trafficking or survivors, to be more positive, because they're already out of the Mm. situation. Mm. Uh, And then 2005, I started to work with the Salvation Army as a referral officer, and again, so at the front line, uh, taking direct referral for victims uh, through telephone or you know, or by email from the police, from the community, or self-referrals from the victims they themselves and other agencies. A really um, challenging role, as I could say, because getting to hear all the stories uh, from victims, what they have experienced. So I can imagine it must be emotionally overwhelming. Yes, yes. Actually, I, I still remember... Most of the cases where after speaking to victims, I would go in the bathroom and I would stand, look in the mirror and say, but why would people do this? <laughs> because sometimes you, you cannot believe that a human being would treat another that way. It's sad. Yes, yeah. yeah, so um, I work have, as a... Do you have a lot of sympathy in that as well? Do you put your emotion into it? Or do you separately... As a human, as a human, if someone is going to say that they're working with people and they're hearing all the sad stories and they're maintaining professionalism and probably after doing the assessment, oh, yeah, it's just another case, put it aside, then they are not human. As a human, you would still feel the pain, but how you deal with it is where the professional bit comes in. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. I guess, yeah, you get a bit desensitized if you're... If uh, I, I can understand why you asked that question, because yeah. Yeah, it's just like, a, yeah. Nice, yeah. What's yeah. a safe house? Well, a safe house is basically. That's the first thing I can remember. Trust me, I've literally <laughs> pictured that movie. I've already seen it. Is it quote the movie of the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the movie of the day, bro. What safe house? <laughs> so, uh, a safe house is basically an accommodation which is used to house survivors of trafficking. Uh, these places have got confidential locations and addresses. They wouldn't be shared uh, with anybody unless... There's fraud. You know the McDonald's behind the McDonald's? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> In fact, you, you, it, it would not be easy for someone to know that this That's is a safe house. Like when I used to work in a safe house, even the neighbors didn't know that it was a safe house. So uh, just to reassure, if anyone has ever experienced trafficking and you think you're going to be put in a safe house, uh, just know that you are safe in a safe house. Do do, do you experience difficulties with, say, individuals that are placed in safe houses? They've probably been in that particular scenario situation um, for quite some time, and so they're conditioned in sort of, I guess, a slave-master sort of mentality, to the point where they may, you may put them in a safe house and they may just go back and return to the situation yeah. because they're completely used to it. Or, you're meaning in terms of re-trafficking? 
or or going back to that that you know, the dependency, dependency. Yeah. The, the dependency brain, syndrome brainwash you and yeah. 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 yeah yeah right so in a safe house there's a lot of work which is done with uh, survivors of trafficking uh, work around you know building relationships trying to build trust because most of them again you know will have lost trust in the system trust in building relationship I've seen survivors who, after they enter the safe house, they wouldn't want to step out because they think when they step out, they're going to meet the traffickers, uh, you know, and all that. But again, um, there are move-on plans for when people are in a safe house. Um, Right, so in most cases, the decision-making process which the UK Home Office uh, takes is that when someone is placed in a safe house, sometimes they will have already got the reasonable grounds, and this is just preliminary decision to say that, oh yeah, based on your story and these indicators, we think you're a victim of trafficking, and that uh, they would be placed in a safe house for 45 days to 60 days, and that has changed now under the National Referral Mechanism Reform, which happened um, last year, that victims can stay for longer than that. Then the last decision is the conclusive ground decision. That is when uh, they have done all the investigations that they needed to really you know, conclude that the person is actually a real victim of trafficking or they are not a victim of trafficking. And then after that, um, they are supposed to be supported to move out of the safe house into the community, or depending on their individual circumstances, mm -hmm. others can be supported back to return to their own countries if it is safe uh, to do so. But again, all the work is done with the survivors. That's mm -hmm. a huge, that's huge. It is. It's, it's a journey mm -hmm. with the survivors. So the dependent, the de dependency syndrome, which you're talking about, mm -hmm. or making them want to say, oh, yeah, we've been here for so long, I want to go back. Yes, I've encountered survivors who would say, you know, I just want to go back home, and that is when they feel it is safe for them to go. There are others where you find that it is not safe for them to go, so all they want is that protection and a place of safety. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> how would you be able to tell us more about Africans that are being trafficked into the UK? Is that something? Because yeah, you mentioned Nigeria, Sudan, mm -hmm. Eritrea. Yeah. Uh, one of the top ten. Yeah, do we know the specific? Because I guess what we did is that we mapped the whole Vietnam to some of the nail shops, and there are other things. Is mm. there like a trend regarding from Africa the specific kind of industries, not, industries that, that they, they mm. might be um, trafficked, okay. in. trafficked into? Yeah. Is there any kind um, of. Right, so when I was talking or introducing myself to you, I mentioned the referral officer thing, but my last role was a project manager where I managed a project um, which was in Nigeria and the Philippines, but I also got to work uh, regionally across Africa and Asia. Cool, I want your job. That's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I want to travel. Yeah. You, well, too much traveling. <laughs> if you're a family person like me, you want to stay home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, we did a mapping of the trafficking routes and also looking at the different nature of exploitation along these routes or plus the destination uh, where the victims would be taken from across Africa and across Asia. So I will 
focus on Africa here. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, if you read the Trafficking in Persons report 2019 for the whole world disease, you'll realize that Africa has got a very high vulnerability to trafficking with so many, you know, women. Actually, I got one statistic here. Um, Nigeria, 75% of women and unaccompanied children trafficked to Italy in 2018. That is quite high. Um, over 800,000 victims of Africans, in, you know, mainly young women, you know, children and young men are trafficked across borders. Trafficking networks in West Africa, you know, Nigeria, um, Ghana, looking at Sierra Leone, looking at um, Burkina Faso, Niger, all linking towards uh, Libya to cross the Mediterranean Sea and come to uh, Europe. But also other trafficking from Nigeria going down to South Africa. Mm. You know, again from Nigeria crossing over to East Africa to go to um, to 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 to, to Emirates, uh, the Arab. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, United the Arabs, the Middle East. That's it. Going to the Middle East, so you find that the route is really crisscrossing. Now, looking at East Africa, trafficking from Eritrea coming up to Europe via Sudan route then connecting with the Sudanese, going through Libya, coming to Europe, you know. Then Eritreans also being trafficked, going through to uh, the Middle East. Ugandans, Kenyans crossing over to go to the Middle East. So the trafficking route, it just keeps, you know, crisscrossing around like that. In terms of the nature of exploitation, most of the Nigerian women traffic to Europe mainly for, you know, sexual exploitation. Seriously? You know, majority ending up in Germany or Italy or coming to the UK Spain, and being on Spain, you know, yeah. into false uh, prostitution. Uh, those going to... Um, mention it again. Middle East. Middle East. <laughs> 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 Those going to the Middle East, also sexual exploitation and domestic servitude. Like majority of the East African nationals, you know, domestic servitude is really, really high, you know, being taken to the Middle East. Now, forced labor for the main, main normally, you know, being used um, just to provide, you know, criminal activities or things like that. And some of them, uh, well, for the case of Uganda, I've heard of some of them being recruited as security guards, but then when you go, you don't see your money, you can't live, you can't do anything, you're actually not a guard. <laughs> you're a guard being guarded. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just so complex. Yeah. So, but one thing is that trafficking and exploitation of African nationals is something which is of high prevalence, not just coming to Europe, but also within African countries. You know, within countries itself, Nigeria to Nigeria, mm -hmm. you know, Ghana, Ghana to Ghana, Ghana yeah. you know, like that, internal trafficking and exploitation is also so high. That's why there are countries which are like their source country, they are destination country, but they're also transit country where they're just passing Pass through. through. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously with the whole 
looking at African, in particular in Ghana, I know there is the whole, um, like having like a housemate, right? Who will normally sometimes come from the village somewhere because the family wanted the person to maybe to be educated so they get a promise of you go to school and all those kind of stuff. Yes. That's what you're referring to. And, and then yes. they'll come and just work in the house, washing people's clothes and cooking for their... For the yeah, for the case of children, sometimes they are trafficked from the rural areas into the cities and may be used as street beggars or used to commit criminal activities that you you mentioned before. So it's it's just like you know it's like a ring, the gang operating you know also within the communities sometimes. Yeah, what I was mentioning about previously about Africa is that. All this sounds so good, but looking into this, would you not say it's mainly um, lack of the economic, like meaning that Africa is not in, like in a Western? Like what, poverty like, kind of thing? Yeah, driven? poverty, like, yeah, because I, I understand what you're saying. UK, Western UK is one of the highest, right? Don't get me wrong, I understand that. But at the same time, Africa also has this this crime, this human trafficking, which is like so affecting within the Af- internally itself, right? But from my understanding, the way I'm seeing it is, if Africa has the same kind of like moral understanding, like Western, like money, economic, working class, this and that, I don't think Africa will be too exploited to as much. But then bear in mind. Within the internal side of Africa itself, we've been doing it for years. It's not just the start of it. This has been happening for years. It's just that now, civilization is more exposed and understanding that is actually happening within Africa itself. But we have been doing it. I, I, I do. I guess I get what you're saying, isn't it? So I guess what you're saying, because it's been happening a long time in Africa, there's opportunity for networks to expand and expand and grow. Um, and, exactly. and become bigger over a substantial period of time simply because it's been going on for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. They are seen as the oracles. Um, I watched this documentary where you had them, um, and that's the thing, some of these examples, so the, 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 the example that was given is that they were farmers, young farmers, in regards to the produce that they were making, they were not getting any, they were, they were being either being bought for cheap mm-hmm. or there were other, um, as they call, free trade, and so you have other European countries that are just dumping this, the same produce into the market. So even if you're producing it, in regards to when you actually get to the market, you almost have to sell higher than um, the other produce that are coming from Europe. Right. So in regards to competition, you don't really have grounds to compete because it's economies of scale. Isn't it? And obviously with some of these farmers as well, from that specific documentary, they've taken loans from banks. So you've taken out a loan to start this farm, but then no one's buying your produce. And then they get stuck in a situation where it's either I stop what I'm doing and try to find a way to travel abroad and try to get some economic pastures. Mm. Or I just stay in this kind of... That, that, that's just one thing that came across when whilst I was doing this kind of research. I've seen a lot of young people that were traveling abroad because they found that in the countries that they were in, they were not getting the right... They, there was not the right systems for them to sustain their family or whatever way that you want to look at it kind of thing. I'm not going to 100% deny, you know, both of your points in relation to that, but I'm going to just say something about attitude, you know. 
Referring to young people who tend to come over, I'll give an example with you know, my work in Nigeria. You find that someone could be having business which is really, you mm. know, relatively good mm-hmm. to sustain them, mm. you know. But again, there is this attitude of, you know, oh, get rich quick yes. syndrome, yes. you know, because maybe um, Moses is in the UK when he goes back home, he's driving this four by four and all that, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I want to be like Moses, you know? So the get-rich-quick syndrome, the, the, the hard-working thing and the patience of saying that I need to build my life, you know, is something which is fading a little bit among us, the African community. Okay. Uh, we might not... I'm not saying we're lazy. <laughs> I'm saying sometimes we set these expectations so high that we want to get there immediately. And then we take the risk. You know, you sell your house, you sell your land, you sell your business, you take a huge loan, mm. and then you're putting all this money in the hand of a people smuggler to smuggle you, you know, take you to Europe in this land of uncertainty. You don't know where you're going, what you're going to do there. So this is a blind risk that, you know, our people are taking, and we need to change that attitude. Can I add to that? I hear your point, but bear in mind also, we Africans that are in this Western world in the first place, we go back and give a false allegation. Yes. Right? False impression. Yes. So mm. once that happens, they don't give us the right information. For example, my country, I'm from Sierra Leone. We call ourselves JC, just come. I'm working very hard here. I know I'm sweating, right? Very hard. But when I go back home, I'm buying the whole... The expensive brand, Gucci, Prada, Louis Vuitton, just to f- fake it. So then, in their eyes, I'm doing well. But not knowing that I'm actually suffering. Because in this Western world, all we think about is what? Pay our bills. And then, the, the, the remaining that is there, we take that and try and save it. Or most of the time, we're trying to go holiday. It depends on your priority. But what I seem to find within the African community, we do not tell the truth. Maybe our generation, the younger one, when they go back home, they tell the truth. But like my parents, I've never seen my mom will look good, dress good in this country. But as soon as she goes back home, she would dress from Monday to Sunday, every different outfit, right? <laughs> she would do it. The and she will make her, uh, uh, her makeup. She yeah. will, her shoes. Cutting she will have two bags bint. of shoes. So when people are seeing that, but even though she doesn't talk to them, but when people are seeing, are thinking, okay, I want to go there. But as you mentioned, they don't have, they don't know what the destination the, the, is. The, it's gone no, the flips side to that, because I, I'm speaking from personal experience with my family. So one of my cousins in Ghana, he. You know, when, I, when I've travelled to Ghana, I don't necessarily set an impression that, you know, things, I'm rich and I've got loads of money and things are rosy. But he has, I guess, this, this ambition to want to travel to the UK and has tried to do so by any means necessary. It's interesting that you mentioned South Africa because he actually ended up there and wanted to try and cross over into the UK but was unsuccessful there. And he's currently in Morocco now. So he's trying to... Um, going to the UK and you know he'll constantly say well I want to come to the UK because you know the situation's better here I can I can work I can make more money I can save up 
And my mum would quite often say to him, well, no, you, there are opportunities in Ghana. You know, you just need to open your eyes up and, and, and seize those opportunities in order to, to, go, to go forward. But... I mean, and... and I'm just eager to come in. And, I, and, I, and he certainly, and, and I guess from his perspective, he, he fails to see um, it any other way as far as he's concerned. He's fixated on that goal of ending up in the UK That's and regardless of what anyone yeah. says to yeah. him, it won't make a difference. Yeah. But then, I, I did I want think, to move the conversation on after you, though. Yeah. Go on. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that Ali mentions that point and um, mm. you mentioned it earlier. But in regards to even how we look, the understanding is that the person that travels to the Western world is able to build a house, a brick house, yeah? buy a land, build a house, come on holiday, show. So it's very... Justifiable. Uh, yeah, it's justifiable from their angle, from how they see it. Mm-hmm. It's very justifiable for them to have that um, mindset. But then on the other angle of it, regardless of me going to Ghana or going to another country, I am on holiday. Like, we go on holiday with a pot of money to spend because we've had a very long year or whatever it is. So, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. on that parallel, yeah, it's not necessarily that someone is, like, going to show off, even though that's part of it. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But it's also that I am on holiday mood. Like, something that I won't buy £10, I'm on holiday. I buy £10, it's not a big deal. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, I guess it's that parallel... And understanding. Sorry, you said two things. You said, oh, you take a, a stack of money and go to Africa and spend. Another thing you said that when uh, Africans are here, they are justified to able to buy a house in back in home. My dad hasn't been in Western, has bought a land, built a house, can take a stack of money and use it. Just prior, prior to what we do here. It's just that our mentality, when we go back home, we just don't, I don't know, it's like we don't, we don't, educate them enough to understand this is not the way because we I want personally my age I want to go back home but how do I go back home because I don't have anything there to start off or I need to at least save up a bit to go there because it's going to be tough because I don't know anything there but I'll prefer to stay there than here that's my understanding but I want to add one thing to I know you want to move on something which we need to know is that Migration is not a bad thing, yes. yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. So wanting to come to the UK or Europe or going to Italy, anywhere you want to go, it is not a bad thing. But we need to encourage people and teach our people to actually use the right means, mm. right, yeah. right and safe means, you know, and make that informed decision. That is the important thing, the thing. Because yeah. it is only through that way that they can actually avoid the trap of falling into the hands of traffickers. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. agree. Totally yeah. agree. I but agree. one point that you made that I don't agree with, I agree to a certain <laughs> extent. Because my dad is in the same situation. Like he's got lands, he's got houses and yeah. stuff. But then when I'm looking at Africa, my dad is seen as someone that has disposable means of income. Yes. Now, a lot of the young generation, and I have friends in, in Ghana, when I speak to them, they don't have the same access to money, right? So everything that we're saying on one hand is that, yes, see Africa in a good light and try to work. There is, there is challenges in Africa. There are systems that don't support that. So I don't want to be on here just saying to people, oh, the, the issue is, is because the people there are not looking at opportunities within Africa. I understand that conversation. But the same parallel conversation is that there are challenges within Africa 
that some of these people find very difficult. That's why they want to migrate. So yeah. that has to be a parallel conversation. You just need just to do it the yeah. right way. Yeah, just yeah. need to do that. Right. Yeah. Just needs Definitely to do it. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, I did want to go on to the whole. There was a statement which was released from the Home Office. Um, there's an article I read. So the Home Office had to rewrite their guidance on handling asylum claims for women trafficked into the UK from Nigeria after it emerged that the advice they claimed to victims that they should return to their African country, that they return back as wealthy from their prostitution or held in high regard when they go back home. Um, so <clears throat> this caused a lot of controversy. I know um, MPs Diana Abbott and David Lamley both tweeted concerns and Lamley wrote, there are no bounds to the Home Office's ad- adherence. There are no bounds to the Home Office's adorance. Only a department woeful, unfit for purpose could imply that women should be grateful for their own rape, slavery and trafficking. To use this to disqualify their asylum claim is beyond belief. Crazy. I must say, David Lamley and Diana, but they do raise these kind of concerns though when it comes across because they're always kind of championing some of these things, man. I would say that in regards to this, I'll let you come and you know more about this. Than but the Home Office, I'm not sure. The reason yeah, why I'm sure. not sure that they'll release such a statement is because of the stuff that we've seen with the um, Windrush generation. For me, that's shocking. That's mm. actually shocking. So, based on that alone, just release such a statement because they do think like this. Yeah. They, in regards to this, when I was looking at the article, they said that um, I think they did some sort of research with Australian. Come on, you mentioned Australia, you mentioned Aboriginals. Like, where do you want to go with this? Like, it's very <laughs> like, where do you really want to go with this? Isn't it? So, for me, it is alarming that you have a Home Office releasing such a statement. Mm. But for me, I'm not necessarily that shocked because of some of the stuff that's happened. That's to do with the Home Office when it comes to the Afro Caribbean community, anyway. Yeah. And, I, and I echo your sentiments, Kodjo. I certainly agree with you as well. I guess seeing something like this is not surprising coming from the Home Office, given um, their, their, I guess, um, their sort of actions over the past few years. So what they were doing was literally denying people their claim, asylum claims, thinking that they can go back to Africa and they'll be living the good life. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, this statement doesn't really sit you know, right with me. Because it's basically generalizing all the victims of trafficking or all the women who have been trafficked and exploited sexually as those who have benefited from the you know, exploitation or the abuse. Or basically what they're labeling this is that it is actually not exploitation, it is a prostitution business. Mm. Which is really, really wrong. Mm. I mean, for every case, it is different and it is unique in its own way. And yes, we do admit that, you know, there are some victims who turn into perpetrators because of the circle. Maybe when they were in the trafficking ring, they make their connection and then they, they have been able to, you know, kind of position themselves in like the abusers. So these ones, they are not victims anymore. They are abusers because they put themselves at a position where they could have, you know, been out of the system. However, they started to use the system to benefit themselves. So this is generalizing 
all survivors of trafficking who have been sexually exploited as basically people who were engaging in, you know, willing full prostitution. So every case needs to be treated differently in a unique way and understanding individual circumstances. If, for example, I've been sexually exploited and I've got you know, safety issues and I've claimed asylum, now my case needs to be looked at, you know, for me as Pasca, but not saying that because Mercy from Nigeria, you know, turned up to be uh, benefiting from prostitution and therefore Pasca could be. Now, having worked with victims of trafficking, they suffer a lot of traumatic you know, experiences, psychological trauma. And these are things that sit with them sometimes for yeah. a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. So basically labeling them as people who benefited from prostitution, it is not right, especially if it's coming from the government, a body which should be protecting victims of trafficking. <laughs> That's the whole, I guess... This this is the whole thing. Look at how I'm getting so animated, man. But <laughs> that is the stuff sometimes where it becomes quite shocking, just regarding the last point that you've been made. Because if this same government's meant to be protecting people, then from that statement, I'm led to believe what type of people are you actually looking out for? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is there some sort of, okay, hierarchical system? No, no, forget the African people because <laughs> they're not... Do you know what I mean? And that's what I'm, I'm led to believe. And that's that's a bit alarming. But then I guess... Devil's advocate here. In regards to, because it seems that they use some sort of criteria or they consider there are other factors that they consider in regards to making that decision. So even though it's individual and it's based on each individual, there might be criteria that you might base that decision on. So I'm guessing the source country as well, regarding the stigma attached to whatever crime or whatever activity, that is part of the criteria. Because I'm guessing from their statement, it's looking at the source country to say that looking at this, there might not be that much stigma. I'm guessing yeah. that's part of the looking at that. Is that yeah. part of it? Well, I, I tried to read that um, submission from the Home Office to, to clarify on the, yeah. the statement they made. They were looking at issues around safety as well. If, for example, let's say uh, the individual was put into the trafficking situation or recruited by their, you know, families or communities or maybe the trafficker is not in the community you know so looking at the safety in that region but also uh, stigma uh, which is attached to victims uh, of trafficking but I did I saw one line which said that actually the level of stigma was so low yes that's what they said you know (laughs) (laughs) which is which I really disagree with (laughs) because I visited survivors of trafficking in Nigeria. I sat with them. I spoke with them. And I know they actually went back empty-handed. And here, what they're being told is like, well, you went to Europe, you came back empty-handed. Yeah, it's possible. When actually, you know, look look at so-and-so, you know. And that, so this comes with a lot of stigma. And some families do reject their very Mm. own, Mm. you see. You know, so they have nowhere to go. Because yeah. it's like, what did you bring us? You just come here exactly. wanting to look after you. Yeah, uh, guys, just to you touch know. back to what um, Moore was reading about the Labour MPs. I swear, from my understanding, Diana Arbor and David Lamy are they not both blacks? 
Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm not quite shocking. They're both actually saying that statement. They never you, said it. So how, what's, which thing? They, they were disagreeing with the Home Office. They were disagreeing with the Home Office. Yeah. Okay, okay. They were not yeah. agreeing. No. Yeah. Yeah. They've been quite good advocates of some of these things. They've been yeah. like, even when you look at their whole. Um, Windrush. Windrush, yeah. 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 It was really good to hear him speak about that in Parliament. So, what could we be doing to identify these things or kind of stop it from happening or not support it? When you go back home, <laughs> stop flossing. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> all these girls that you guys are taking back home, stop it now. <laughs> stop getting all from, stop getting the pedicure. Ask the question. <laughs> well, the first thing I, I would like to say is that um, human trafficking is, uh, is a problem which is affecting all of us as a community. And therefore, we need to take action. As black people, we need to really position ourselves at the forefront to tackle the issue, you know, considering the fact that, you know, the, the prevalence and the number of people trafficked from Africa, you know, from Caribbean is not, you know, not really coming into the light, mainly Africa. So we really need to, to, to own the issue as a problem a problem which is affecting us as a community. Uh, what can we do? Tell the story. Tell the story as it is, you know. Let's talk about the issue of human trafficking. When we see the boat sinking in the Mediterranean Sea, it is not a movie, okay? This could be people who have maybe started their journey willingly with smugglers, but then they got somewhere and got entangled into the web of trafficking. You know, I interviewed other survivors who escaped from Libya or were returned from Libya to Nigeria. And basically, the fact that when they got there, they are held in debt bondage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen you know? some of those videos. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also some really sad videos of people being auctioned, which yes. came out, yeah. you know, 2018. Yeah. You can just imagine, you know, we are not for sale. People are not for sale. So let's tell the story as it is. Let's share the story at home. Let's educate our children and our families and the people we connect with so they understand that this issue of human trafficking is not a whitish kind of people thing. It is something which is affecting us and affecting families. It's breaking down relationships and families. For example, if someone is trafficked or recruited from a family and the family, they had the hand in it, after escaping, will they go back to that family? Would you want to relate? You know, to build that relationship will take time. So let's tell the story as it is. Have real conversation. It might seem difficult, but let's do it. You know, last year when I was in Uganda, my nephew, I was using my nephew's phone, and a telephone call came, and he wasn't there. So while I was running to look for him, I answered the call, and I just said, oh, you know, Sorry, I'm using Harmony's phone. That's not his name. You know, <laughs> I'm going to take the phone to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. So then, me being me, <laughs> I just said, um, uh, "Who are you?" Because this is a young, you know, boy who had just actually finished A levels. I said, "Oh, actually, I work for a recruitment agency, and I'm recruiting uh, people to go and work 
in the Middle East what? to go to Dubai. It's like, okay, so what sort of job? And do you know this is a young person? That, oh, yes, 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 I've been speaking with him. And I said, okay, so what sort of jobs? They said, so many jobs working, you know, in, in shopping malls, in accountants, and, and just counting all this. Okay, um, why are you not doing that job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you understand. So I just told him, do not call this number again. I'm going to list your number with the police. Mm. Because you are a trafficker, and he just hung up straight away. Really, it's okay. interesting because I guess that's the sophistication of in terms of like the networks. You know, they call it. Yes, across, exactly. You know, so professional that you're yes. sort of sucked into that 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 network. You know, exactly. and then before you know it, you step in and. But that's the thing. Yeah. If it was not even for your experience, because you could have yeah. maybe even your. Um, it could be the parents of yes. them picking up and be like, oh, what, they have this opportunity? Because sometimes it's how it's seen, yes. it? it's how they sell it, yeah. yes. where you have parents actually giving them their go-ahead. Because one of the things that I read was that it's easy for sometimes for people to traffic because they have consent from their parents, and then yeah. you can understand why the consent is there. Because if you're pitching that, that to way, parents, yeah. they'll be like, okay, cool, like yeah. my child is actually going on yes. something. You know. So that, that's, that's actually that very... prestige yeah, feeling, prestige, oh, my yeah. child is going abroad yeah, and abroad things and like that. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So from that, I had to have a meeting, and I found out, actually, you know, these people were going to schools, waiting for those finishing their exams, going on vacation... And trying to, oh you know, yeah. So I notified our police officer friend, and he said, "Oh, actually, we are aware of this ring of people, and we are hunting them down." Okay, and that leads me to the second uh, point: What can we do to stop the issue? We need to be aware of the red flags, the indicators, the things to look out for in our communities that would actually indicate or show that someone could be a victim of trafficking or modern slavery. If you're in a nail bar, you're doing your nails, don't just sit there quiet and having your headphone and you quiet. Connect. I like yeah. talking with yeah. people who are yeah. doing my hair. I don't do my nails. <laughs> but when I'm doing my hair in a salon in, in Peckham, I am talking, you know, I'm connecting and I'm saying but, but some might find, though, in the nail bars especially, that they don't speak English <laughs> and you can't actually converse with them yeah. fully. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that kind of identifier aspect will yeah. be a bit more difficult. They want to learn at the same the, time. The thing is, though, human beings cannot fail to connect no and communicate no matter what. There could be language barrier, but these people do understand broken English and what you ask, you're not asking them that, how oh, did you come here? No. no. Mm-hmm. Hello, how are you? How was your day? How is your day? Mm-hmm. What are you doing after work? They know you know, exactly. Yeah, so because they start giving yeah. the key things away. You know, mm-hmm. and then you can just pick, sometimes you can see the level of control. Maybe the madame is coming around and say, oh, mercy, mm-hmm. just work. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're yeah, talking too much. Yeah. Things like, don't yeah. talk. Because you know? information. Things like that. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of be uh, aware of your surrounding, your environment, and connect with people, you know, in the nail bar salon, wherever you are, you know, car wash. So if you pick any indicator of trafficking, you know, it doesn't cause any harm to notify the police. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to report the case. How would you After raise it? all... What's the key, like, key word that you need to use when you're raising this? There's no standard key word. No, it's like, what? I've just, come to report something <laughs> suspicious. I've just seen... I've just come across a lady or a man that I think might have been trafficked. Or, or I think that... Do, do you know, I, I mean it in that sense, but I know that there isn't, but it's like... Yeah, like... Um... About two years ago, I took a telephone call from a member of the public, again, South London, um, Dagnam, is that South London? East 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 London. London? Yeah, Yeah, I do remember this because I had to lock it with the police. And the lady just said that, look, I don't want to give you my name and you don't have to give your name anyway. You can make an anonymous, you know, uh, report. Mm. And she said, I've been seeing people, you know, coming in and out of this address mm-hmm. and entering into a van, and you don't see them. It's always like that. Wow. So I, I just, I don't know, maybe it's not what I think, but I thought I should notify. Okay? okay? Mm-hmm. So, so giving that... They didn't give you a label. They just describe what exactly. they Exactly. Give the address yeah. and what, why they're suspecting mm-hmm. this, and then pass the information to the police. Mm-hmm. Do not start asking the questions around to to verify if this could be a case of trafficking because you'll be putting yourself at risk if truly that person, you know, or that is a a practice which relates to trafficking and modern slavery. Mm -hmm. So you just observe, know the red flags that you're looking for, you know, people who are controlled, they they have no relationship, they're in loneliness, psychological trauma, they look isolated and withdrawn, you know. So just pick out this signs and then you can notify authorities but what what if some people struggle with it because they just find it a snitching like oh why are you reporting this I, I, one I was to just the about to say that one, like but on, on this occasion you need to snitch man it, it makes no <laughs> sense because you know what it is the parallel that you need to draw here is that we're talking about how many years ago that we're talking about slavery and every time that slavery is being spoken about i think that if i was doing that generation if i was there what would i have done like how would that because it, it, I find it very, I, I find it mind blowing that such thing was able to even happen. Mm-hmm. But they were talking about 2018 when I was watching videos yes. of people in bondages. This yes. is slavery. Yes, there is no difference mm. to it. It's just not. It's not just concentrated in all the whole African um, continent as it was before. But this is actually slavery. So for me, if I'm a snitch, you could call me a snitch any day. If I'm if I'm trying to no, because for me it's just ridiculous. We have to do something about that. And that's the passion side of it. I yeah. just had to say that because f- for me, one thing also that I find alarming is the Western policy. Because you look at Libya, for instance, yeah? And I'm not condemning or saying that Saddam Hussein, but not Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. and when Gaddafi was in power, right? So you look at when Gaddafi was in power and when Gaddafi was toppled, what has been happening in Libya mm. in regards to that route. And, and this stuff that you're seeing in the Mediter- Mediterranean... How did that come about in the first place? Yeah. Because these things were not happening, right? Yeah. So there are things at play. It, it's, it's, it's very, for me, it's very, it's very sad that when these people will end up in Italy and France, and then the same people that fostered these wars are then sitting there complaining they don't want to take these people in. When, if you didn't foster these wars, some of these people will not be there in the first place. Do you know what I mean? So, so for me, like... When, when I'm looking at this in regards to that whole snitching thing, I feel like you have to. It, for me, people are going through things that is out of, like, any human being should not be going through that, yeah. you know, in honesty. Oscar, one thing, very important thing, 
What do you think about the internet? The internet. Um... Right, the internet. There is both the positive and the negative sides of the internet as well. Okay? Yeah. The positive side is that you can get information out there around you know, awareness or you know, good information that can help the community. The negative side is that if, for example, there is like a lot of grooming which happens you know, online okay. and issues like that, it can be really difficult to crack into mm -hmm. and get all of it. Uh, talking on online sexual exploitation, which is one form of exploitation which mm -hmm. might not even require crossing borders, and people are just trafficked and maybe confined in a room, in a home somewhere, in a hotel room, and mm -hmm. they are made to perform yeah mm -hmm. sexual Those acts and this is recorded mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. yeah. So and exactly and yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah. this this is very common in asia uh philippines for example is known for online sexual exploitation a lot um i did kind of checked with nigeria if this was crossing but it's not really so common in Africa yet. But we cannot say it's not happening. Africa you know? don't play with kids like that. The reason why I mm -hmm. asked that... Africa um, don't play with kids like that. Right, so we're talking about trafficking here. Mm -hmm. African values in Africa will look after each other. In Africa, I wouldn't be taking advantage of you and trafficking you and locking you in my basement and bringing other men to exploit you in mm. my own home. Yeah, it's true. We all yeah. values. So we cannot say, no, it's not happening simply because it's not been brought out to light. Mm. We just need to safeguard against it uh, to make sure that it doesn't gain ground in Africa or in our communities. The reason why I brought up the internet is because this Western world, especially younger children, the age of below five that I around, the most of the time they're on the phone, laptop, iPad, the mom, the parents' phone, always playing games. Yeah. And that and that that's like a good kind of like alerting warning. Yeah. So parents should be able to set parental control uh, that would block children from accessing certain websites or um, sites. Uh, Google, for example, has been really uh, campaigning for safety, online safety as well. So that's uh, one area that we need to take responsibilities as parents to safeguard our children when they are online or using the Internet. Uh, I wanted to add one point around what we can do to you know, stop human trafficking or to fight human trafficking in our communities. Again, it's still around awareness. You know, African communities, we've got so many gatherings that we do attend. Yeah. We are actually social animals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was watching something on BBC of the Igbo community uh, in Liverpool, this is uh, a tribe in Nigeria. Yeah. So yeah. they meet every year and they just have this a lot of celebration around food and music, dancing and things like that. You know, Ugandan community, they do have, you know, community meetings that they gathering probably. Sierra Leone, you know, Ghana, so many different, you know, communities. We do have these gatherings. It's, it's in our blood. So how about us using these opportunities to create more awareness on human trafficking? 
you can actually just invite someone. There are so many agencies, organizations, if you invite them, the Salvation Army, for example, if you invite them to come and give a session you know, about human trafficking, they will come. Okay. They will talk. Our churches, you know, there was a controversy around churches in Nigeria being, you know, drawn into trafficking ring and being used for trafficking people. Now, why don't churches do mobilize African churches and talk about human trafficking so that your congregation can actually get to know what constitutes human trafficking and that. So we just need to look at this as a problem which is deeply affecting us. Already we are facing challenges at home. We do not want to make it worse by enslaving our very own or probably covering our faces when we see that the issue is so real and it's really affecting our communities. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, uncovered a lot of things, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we could delve in as well, especially in terms of, like, the organ trafficking as well. That's a very big aspect of it. Um, but, yeah, listeners, if you have enjoyed it, we can <clears throat> definitely let us know your thoughts. Um, I did want to take this moment also just to uh, just highlight some options in terms of if you are in Wolf Road, Campbell, Peckham, South London, and you need to go get your nails and stuff done. Um, also, the disclaimer that not all Vietnamese or Chinese nail bars support human trafficking. But um, if you do want to support black-owned nail bars, there are some other options that you might want to go to. They may not be as cheap, but then you are also supporting your community and your people. Um, so there is one in Brixton, Cold Harbour Lane, Amar. That's a nail bar. Uh, there's one in Shoreditch, Flawless Touch. Uh, there's another one in Shoreditch as well, Colour Riot Nails. And uh, Sheer Beauty as well in Stratford. Uh, if that's not a distance for you or if you're them people that are travelling from outside of South London to come in there is that option but yeah it's been a really really interesting topic um, and yeah we'd really like to hear more about what everyone can say and thank you for listening thank you for listening to this episode of the LDN Perspective Podcast please get in contact with us and um, we want to create more of an organic platform so if you have any questions please check our Instagram page, which is LDN Perspective. You could also reach us on Twitter, Perspective LDN. And please, you could always drop us an email at ldnperspective at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Perspectives, different views, one One voice. voice.